Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Acts chapter 7. In the last chapter, we met an important character named Stephen. He was one of the seven new leaders, the proto-deacons, you might say, appointed by the apostles to help minister to the poor in Jerusalem. We're told that he was a godly man and a powerful man. Acts 6.5 says that he was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And Acts 6.8 says that he was full of grace and power and was doing great wonders and signs among the people. It was his preaching, however, that got him into trouble. He began publicly disputing with some Greek-speaking Jews, and they could not withstand his wisdom or spiritual insight. So, they brought charges against him. They went to the leaders of the people and said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. In Acts 6, 13-14, we hear the specifics of the charges. They accused Stephen of preaching against this holy place, so that would be the temple, and the law. For we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. In Acts 7, we have Stephen's lengthy defense against those charges and the verdict and the sentence that was carried out at the conclusion of his trial. This is a long chapter, and Stephen gives us a long sermon. Stephen's sermon in Acts 7 is one of the longest recorded speeches in all the Bible. And I think that gives us an idea of its importance. Now, basically, Stephen makes two points in this rather long sermon. First of all, he says that the Jews have a long history of rejecting the people that God sends to deliver them. And secondly, he says that the Jews have a long history of falling into idolatry and superstition, particularly when it comes to the temple. The implication is that Jesus is the redeemer of God's people, whether the Jews have rejected him or not and that he has replaced the temple as the proper meeting place between God and men, whether the Jews approve of that or not. It is at that point in Stephen's speech that he says that he is seeing Jesus standing at the right hand of Almighty God, and that pretty much ends the formal proceedings. We don't know whether Stephen had a third point. His sermon is interrupted by the rage and violence of his accusers. They drag him out of the city, and they stone him to death. And Saul approves of his execution. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. And then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died... God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac, 
and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Now let's just pause and notice that Stephen, after a fairly lengthy preamble, has provided a piece of evidence. He has referred to the story of Joseph as an example of how the Jewish people have typically related to their redeemers. God used Joseph to save the people of Israel, but they were jealous of him and sold him into Egypt. The story of Joseph thus can be considered Exhibit A. Verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when 40 years had passed, he saw an angel appear to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning. And I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea 
and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they returned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Here we observe Stephen concluding his first point and transitioning into his second. He has spoken about Moses, whom they rejected. Moses is exhibit B, another redeemer rejected by the people of God. And then in verse 40, Stephen begins to move into his second point. The people of God inclined towards idolatry. They said to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. And they made the golden calf and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. Verse 42. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Raphan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. So here Stephen is saying that the Jewish people have been lawbreakers and idolaters throughout their history. They started into their idolatry while Moses was up on Mount Sinai. It's a little hypocritical for you now to accuse me of being contrary to the law of Moses when you people were breaking the law of Moses while Moses was receiving the law of Moses. You were determined to engage in idolatry even then. Even when God gave you the temple, you used it for idolatry. That's what Stephen is saying. Of course, that's true. We read that in 2 Chronicles 33, verse 3, where it says that Manasseh rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down, and he erected altars to the Baals and made Ashereth and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them, and he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Closed quote. So, You used the temple to worship idols, Stephen says. Are you so sure that God isn't prepared to remove the temple and do something entirely new? Because the temple has not brought about the sort of golden age of worship and purity that you seem to think that it has. That's the general thrust of Stephen's argument. We pick it up in verse 44. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, 
whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. The first verse of chapter 8 tells us that Saul approved of his execution. And there is a sense in which this speech serves as a transition point in Luke's narrative. Chapter 8 tells us that on that day, the day of Stephen's execution, a great persecution arose in Jerusalem against the Christian community, and they were scattered throughout Judea and the surrounding areas. Thus, Stephen's speech marks a turn in the focus of Luke's story. Now we are hearing about the spread of the gospel in Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the Roman world. And Saul, who approved of Stephen's execution, will play a critical role in this next part of the story. So Stephen's, Stephen's speech serves as a sort of narrative hinge, but it also serves as something of a theological apologetic for that hinge. I, Howard Marshall, says here, the speech has its part in the total story of Acts in showing that the Jews to whom the gospel was first preached had rejected it, and thus clearing the way for the church to turn away from Jerusalem and the temple and to evangelize further afield, and ultimately among the Gentiles. Closed quote. And that is what we shall see. We shall see the gospel being preached, still in Jerusalem, but now also in Judea, Samaria, and all the world. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources, you can find those over the website at www.intotheword.ca. You can also check us out on Facebook, and I hope that you do. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there, and we post daily encouragements and conversation starters. Hope to see you there. And I hope to see you again tomorrow, right here, for another episode of Into the Word. You